Uh, you'll find out I have many favorite chapters in Isaiah, but surely in the top 10 or 15 for me is chapter 2. It may even be higher than that. I really like chapter 2. It's a chapter we probably do know fairly well, but I'll tell you something that I think is always helpful when we study. Read it with open eyes. Look at what it's saying. So often we have a mindset already of what we think it's saying. And we'll get more out of it if we just look at it again and see what is it really saying. I love studying with people who don't know very much at all about the book that I'm studying. Because when you do that, you start thinking about what are they seeing for the very first time when they read this. You know, it's hard for me to teach somebody and not put myself kind of in their place and think about, well, how are they, you know, what are they listening to here? And then I'm thinking, now if I come out and say something that is totally different from what this passage is saying, they're going to know that I've got some sort of a prejudiced agenda and I'm not really trying to go from the Bible. So it makes me stop and think about, well, you know, what is this saying? And we're going to try to do that, of course, always in our Bible study, but it's a good thing to do here, even though especially this first section, maybe a section you've heard about quite a bit. So, would somebody read chapter 2, verses 1 to 4? The word which Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now it will come about in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains, and he will be raised above the hills, and all the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of, of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For the Lord, for the law will go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge between the nations, and will render decisions for many people. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn more. So, if you're really looking at this passage and trying to see it, what do you see happening? There will be peace. Yes, that's the last thing you see. What do you see before that? that the house of the Lord will be established. All right, you've got this mountain, the the Lord's house's mountain. And what happens to it? It's elevated. Yeah. Now, I want you to think of a mountain range. And all of a sudden, there's one mountain, and it starts growing. You know, it's like it's being pushed up from underneath. It just starts growing higher and higher and higher and higher. To where it just towers now above the other mountains in the mountain range. This particular mountain here is the mountain of God's house. God's mountain is raised up above all the other mountains. And what's the next thing you see happening? Yes, all the nations stream up to the mountain. That's a curious verb there. Uh, Is there anything that strikes you as a bit odd about that? Yes, the uh, force of gravity would probably indicate that nothing would stream up to this extremely exalted mountain unless there is some sort of special supernatural magnetism or something, attraction, that this mountain has that these nations flow up, stream up to this mountain. Now, as we think about what this means, kind of integrating in what it means with uh, what we're seeing, I think what we're seeing is um, God's 
kingship and his sovereignty being raised up and exalted. Mountains in the Bible often refer to kingdoms. They often refer to the rule or the power. Can you see why? They dominate the landscape. Can't miss them. And, and you know, you think about rulers and power and kingship, they're high and exalted. They're, they're above other things, so that's what the mountain is. So you have God's kingship being raised up. When was that going to happen? In the last days. Now we would usually, and I think appropriately, connect a passage like this with uh, what New Testament passage especially? Acts 2. And I think that's appropriate. If you actually went back to Acts 2 and you studied that, and particularly you studied Peter's sermon. Remember Peter's sermon there on the day of Pentecost? I believe Peter preached basically that the mountain had been raised up. Now what was the mountain that Peter said had been exalted? Christ. Absolutely. He has been raised from the dead and then Peter specifically says in Acts 2 and verse 33 therefore having been exalted to the right hand of God and in verse 36 having been made both Lord and Christ the focus of Peter was on the exaltation of the kingship of Christ he had been raised up and in fact there in Acts chapter 2 once Peter preaches that sermon what do you see happening? Dreaming. People from all different places streaming up to the mountain. Now they actually were all Jews but as you keep reading in the New Testament you see people from various nationalities not just living in other places that stream up to that mountain. And uh, I really think that's the picture here. It's the picture of what Jesus would do, what God would do in the last days, is he would exalt Jesus' kingship above all things. And people would stream up to that mountain. So, if you are really looking at this carefully, what would give me the, uh, the synonym for the church in verse 2? The church is in what part of that picture? The house of the Lord. Nations. Yes, it is, but it's especially in the nations that stream up to the mountain. Now, what we're tempted to think is that the church is the mountain. And that the church has been exalted and we need to flow up to the church. But the truth is, the church is people, the people who come to the mountain. The thing that's been exalted isn't us. It's the Lord. But now, now, I think it is helpful to stop and think a little bit about these people that flow up to the mountain. In fact, um, I think we can identify some specific characteristics here of mountain people. That's the kind of people we want to be in this case. We want to be mountain people. And uh, what are some of the things that you could uh, say from this passage characterizes mountain people? Go to the mountain. That's the first point. They go to Jesus. They come up to the Lord. That's fundamental. If we don't come to the Lord, we're not mountain people. What else? They're excited about being tied. Says they say of their own free will, "Come, let us go to the mountain." And it says that we, that 
Alright, they're excited enough that it looks to me like in the first part of verse 3 they're inviting others to go too. Come let us go up to the mountain. Mountain people are evangelistic. They do not keep this excitement to themselves. They share with others and encourage other people to come up to the mountain with them. That's a good, good thought. I mean, you look through the Bible and one of the characteristics of God's people is they proclaim and declare the glory and the greatness and the will of God to others. They want God to be exalted not just by them, but by everybody. And they talk about him all the time and they talk about how great he is. You don't see in the Bible quiet mountain people. You see mountain people constantly encouraging other people to share in those blessings with them. Okay, that's two points. They uh, come to the mountain and they invite other people to come too. What's the next point? Why do they come to the mountain? To be taught. To be taught. They want to learn. Learn what? God's ways. They come with a humble and moldable spirit, eager to listen to the Lord of the mountain, tell them what to do, what his ways are. They want to learn. You take people whose mind is closed, they're not mountain people. Well, why do they want to learn? What does he say? So they'll know how to walk, yes. This is not just learning for the sake of learning. They want to learn so they can do it, so they can walk in his paths. You know, people who only want to know, but they don't want to do it, they're not really God's people. And then finally, in verse 4, what would you say about mountain people? Peaceful. Absolutely, they love peace. They destroy the weapons of war. They they end the practice of war. They abolish the mentality of war. And they really submit to the decision of the Lord, the arbiter, to judge the disputes. So they don't fight it out among themselves. They submit to the Lord's decisions in any dispute. So in chapter 2, verses 2 through 4, This is God's people. And this is a great sermon. It's a great lesson for us. God's people are people who come to Jesus. They're the people who invite other people to come. They're the people who come to learn so that they can walk. They're people characterized by a love of peace and by submissiveness to the decisions of the Lord. (coughs) Comments and questions. So is the Lord's house in verse 2 simply the collectivity of all the people that are coming to the mountain? Yes, I think so. I think this is uh, probably, we ought to first think about Mount Zion being the mountain where the temple was. I think that's probably what Isaiah would have thought about. And then it's the mountain where God's people are. You know, they're the one. It's the mountain where where God's people come and they join together with Him. So I think that's probably the idea. Other thoughts. Mountain climbing today is still hasn't become very easy thing for everyone to do. So see, not only were they willing to travel, 
into the terminal and walk up the ramp. Yeah. Sometimes we have to put away things in our hard drives in order to follow them. Good point. Such a refreshing contrast with what the way the people in chapter one approached worship that as something to get out of the way so, so that they could, you know, have pleased God and could get on with what they wanted to do. These people approached worship as something that would teach them so that they could follow God after they left. You know. Yeah. Exactly. You see them as being much more sincere and much more wholehearted in turning to the Lord. Yeah, excellent point. Sarah? It just occurred to me that Sodom and Gomorrah were on a well-watered plain and not on a mountain. Yeah. So, just to, as a visual, you know, you can look at the plains people and the mountain people. We're going to see a little bit more of that, too, as we keep going in the chapter, so yes. Would it be helpful to say is describing which mountain, you know, which mountain is going to be exalted? The mountain of the house of the Lord, the one from God's house or from God's people or God's mountain. Yeah, ultimately, because in verse three he says it's the mountain of the Lord. And then in verse three, though, to the house of the God of Jacob, is that to the, the same, place where God lives? Same yes. type of thing. I think so. I think here, think about. This is the Lord's mountain. This is a place where his house is. And it would be, obviously... Where you can be with him. The his house. Yes. Yes, I think so. Yeah, it's just... Uh, you know, it, it's the idea that ultimately God's rule reigns over all and his people flow to him and join with him up on the mountain. The, you know, the sinful present and the judgment, chapter 1. But here, in the last days, after this, God's going to exalt his rulership and there's going to be people from all nations stream up to that. So it's a refreshing, encouraging, exciting picture in contrast with chapter 1. Gary, just a point about the plowshares here. For a nation to converge their swords and their weapons to plowshares and plows, that's suicide. Not only is it that they're, they're seeking peace, they're not making war. They're, they're set to the they don't need to make war, do they? Yeah, good point. Do you recognize that that's a figure that goes both ways in the Bible? In Joel 3, uh, God is challenging his enemies to put up, put up their dukes and fight like a man, you know, arm themselves. He says, beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I'm a mighty man. He says, you know, go ahead and change your agricultural implements into implements of war and fight me and see what happens. I'll still whip you. But here, it's the idea of they don't need the weapons anymore. They don't want the weapons anymore. They'll trust God to render just decisions. Other thoughts? See why I like this passage? It's cool. Alright. Now look at the contrast. Verses 5 to 8. Come, house of Jacob, and let us walk in the light of the Lord. For you have abandoned your people, the house of Jacob, because they are filled with influences from the east, and they are soothsayers like the Philistines, and they strike bargains with the children of foreigners. Their land has also been filled with silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. 
Their land has also been filled with horses, and there is no end to their chariots. Their land has also been filled with idols. They worship the work of their hands, that which their fingers have made. This is addressed to? Those who were God's people with thought. And they really probably could learn a lot by taking a chapter out of the book of the uh, nations from verses 2 through 4. Because here the house of Jacob had been filled with certain things. Like what? Yes, foreign influences. And filled with what else? Soothsayers. Yeah, that's still the foreign influences. Silver and gold. Silver and gold, and filled with what else? Horses and chariots. Horses and chariots, human weapons, and filled with what else? Idols. There's your four points right there. That's what the house of Jacob were filled with. Now, look back at 121 for a moment. What had they been full of? Justice, but it's not that way now. Think about these points. They're filled with the uh, influences from the East, the, the Philistines and the children of foreigners. They, they sort of uh, accept pagan philosophies, um, mindsets. Um, that's a pretty sad commentary on God's people that instead of listening to him and learning his ways they're swallowing down the, uh, the perspectives of the world and the fact that they're filled with silver and gold they're, they're eager for material possessions they want wealth they want things that, that, that enrich them monetarily and, and they're filled with horses and chariots it tells you they, they trust in their own strength and you can look at Deuteronomy 17 talking about the kings they were not to multiply gold and silver or horses and chariots because when you multiply horses and chariots it shows that you're trusting in your own strength and you're not trusting in God that was the real problem with that <laughs> and they're filled in verse 8 with idols with things that they make themselves when they don't really have the Lord well, we know we can't handle life on our own, so guess what we do? Fill ourselves up with things we've made ourselves to worship and to trust in. Doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but that's exactly what they were doing. Are we anything like that? Do we, are we more like the mountain people in 2 to 4? Or are we more like the house of Jacob, the former people of God? who mostly are full of worldly philosophies, material possessions, human strength, and our own self-made idols. By their fruits you will know them. That's a truth. I mean, which picture looks more like us? Do you see the contrasts? You know, think about this a little bit as you look at it. Because if you, if you examine the, the contrasts, you see the, the world turning to the mountain. And you see God's people turning to the world. You know, they're kind of passing each other in the night, you know, going in opposite directions. You see the world in two to four seeking spiritual benefit 
and the house of Jacob seeking silver and gold. You see the world, the nations in two to four seeking peace, and the house of Jacob filled with horses and chariots. You see the world seeking the true God, and the house of Jacob seeking gods they've invented for themselves. You know, I wonder if there aren't some times when that would exactly be our situation. If there aren't some times when if we were really honest with ourselves, you know, we become more like the world. And there are people that we would identify as well. They're not Christian peoples who are much more spiritually focused and who are much closer to God. That's He's trying to wake his people up by saying, look what's going to happen. In the last days, the nations are going to come and do these things while you're filling yourself up with all this worldly stuff. Comments and questions? I think it's important to note that I, I like your choice of words here. This is what's being sought. They're seeking after you know, either the things of God in verses 2 4 or the things of this world in 6 through 8. You know, God's present. God presents each of us with choices. It's not that oh, well, this is just kind of the natural way of things that you know the world is going to flow toward God and, and God's people is going to flow in. You know, this is the choices that's, that are being made here. You know, the mountain people choosing to come to God and, and God's people here in verses six through eight choosing to fill up with silver and gold and idols and rubbish. Which is our choice, Sarah? And if you look at it's, it's a progression. There's a little bit of influence, and then there are these bargains, and so there's a little bit of commerce and exchange of wealth, and then it becomes more than just economic dependence. There's a military dependence, and then suddenly you have idols in your house. When you know all you really did was say hello to your Philistine neighbor, and we're still not happy whatever the God of the week is day. That was what God was worried about all along when they left the Canaanites in the land. They'd start to get chummy and pretty soon they'd become like them. Other thoughts? Nine to seventeen. People bow down, and each man humbles himself. Therefore, do not forgive him. Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty. The lofty looks of man shall be humbled, the haughtiness of men shall be bowed down, and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. For the day of the Lord of hosts shall come upon everything proud and lofty, upon everything lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Upon all the cedars of Lebanon that are high and lifted up, and upon all the oaks of Bashan, Upon all the high mountains and upon all the hills that are lifted up. Upon every high tower and upon every fortified wall. Upon all the ships of Tarshish and upon all the beautiful slopes. The loftiness of man shall be bowed down and the haughtiness of men shall be brought low. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Okay. So in 8 they were bowing down so to speak before their idols. And now in 9 what's God doing? Yeah, bringing them down. Humbling them, lowering them. And 
Well, as they face the terror of the Lord, what are they looking for? Camouflage. They want to hide. Yeah, they want to hide. Better than camouflage is what? Forgiveness. Well, yeah. But what are they looking for here? <laughs> what, are they, what are they seeking? A cave hole in the ground. A the ground. A bomb shelter. You know, they're trying to get away by trying to, to hide. Trying to, to, you know, get into the heart of the earth to where they can hide from, from the terror of God because God is bringing pride down. Remember verse 11. That's a key verse, and we'll see this over and over again in Isaiah. God humbles pride. He brings it down. And you see it in verse 12. And you see it in specific applications in 13 to 16. Now look at the things that God is against in 13 to 16. What's the common characteristic of those items? Strength. Strength, yes. High. Yeah. The high trees, you know, and the high mountains and hills and the high towers and walls and the the ships lifted up out of the sea. You know, everything that that is rising above the landscape around it. What's God going to do with those things? Yeah. Lower them. Now, think what happens. Two to four, what happens to God's mountain? It goes up. What happens to the surrounding landscape? Goes down. Guess what? That serves to set out the exaltation of God's mountain even more. God will not allow any rivals in his sovereignty, in his exaltation. The surest way to get God against you is try to pridefully lift yourself up as a rival to him. God will not accept that. He lowers everything man tries to raise up. Comments and thoughts? Pretty clear, isn't it? It's a warning against human pride. It's a warning against us raising ourselves up. He who humbles himself will be exalted. He who exalts himself will be abased. How many times did Jesus say that? And you see right where this comes from. <clears throat> yes, Nathan. It seems like if we'd be focused on the mountain of the Lord, all those things would look so good. You're exactly right. <laughs> we would hardly notice them, would we? You know, we get we get impressed by human pride. And all of these great accomplishments of men, because we've not even noticed there's that towering mountain way above all those things. And we see, even just later in the book, in Isaiah 45, it says, you know, every knee shall bow to me. Every knee shall take an oath. He's going to humble us. We're going to be humble, whether we do it ourselves or he can do it for us. We're going to bow to him, whether we do it willingly or not. Why not just do it willingly? Because we know we're going to have to do it in judgment. It would be a lot better for us. <laughs> right. Was this written before or after Jonah went to Nineveh? Uh, before. Okay. So that was kind of interesting that Jonah may have read about people trying to flee away at Tarshish, but he tried to run away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Tarshish was kind of the um, 
the far away Hong Kong, I guess. You know, it was the, the long distance port of choice. This is an interesting contrast, and the first part of the chapter, he's talking about going to God to hear his paths, the ways of truth, versus us seeking the world and his wisdom, and then he says that wisdom doesn't amount to anything. And we do the same thing in the church, where we're seeking out how would these businessmen run the church, or how should we look to these marriage counselors to affect our family life, and listen to Dr. Phil instead of listening to Proverbs, and just on and on and on, and God's saying, don't do it. Don't do it. Yeah. Well, you know, how would any man know as much as God would know about anything? You know, we, we, are, we are going to hear much better advice when it's the Lord's advice than when it's any man's advice. Other thoughts? I just work with Isaiah 40 when he's saying that every valley shall be exalted and every mountain will be made low. Probably just a whole different figure. I think the idea is God is going to smooth out the path for the Lord to come. There may be a few things we can say about that when we come to it, but but I think I think the point is not really that related to this. Yes. The uh, bigger they are, the harder they fall. The <laughs> bigger their sword is, the easier it is to cut off their own head with it. Uh, well, 18 to 22. And the idols shall utterly pass away, and people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord, and from the splendor of His majesty when He rises to terrify the earth. In that day, mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship, to the moles and to the bats, to enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs from before the terror of the Lord, and from the splendor of His majesty when He rises to terrify the earth. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is He? So, look at people's terror before the Lord. Seeking hole in the ground, caves, you know, anything to try to hide themselves from God's wrath. And then look at verse 20. What are they going to do with their idols in that day? Chuck them to where? The moles and the bats. Now that's not an interesting uh, conjunction of animals. I don't know, what do you think about moles and bats, guys? Lion is a bat. They're both blind. Mm-hmm. Dark, dark, dark places. places. How many of you have a pet mole in your house? <laughs> or a pet bat? Is there a reason for that? How do you think of moles and bats? They're like nice. They're dirty. Yeah. They're kind of, ooh, kind of give you the creeps. You know, they're kind of, uh, you know, despicable animals, really. I mean, you know, few people get any kind of warm, fuzzy feeling when they think about a mole or a bat. I think that's the point here. They're going to be so, you know, just hating 
They're idols so much. They're going to throw to the bulls and the bats. Get rid of them. You know, throw to the animals that are most despised. They don't want to have anything to do with those idols in that day. Because in that day, the idols are the downfall. That's what you don't want. You see the idea of that? I mean, you know, I want you to think about this. What if you would evaluate everything in your life by this test? How will we value it in that day? What would we want to do with it then? Micah? I was just going to ask, aren't moles and... I don't know much about them. Aren't they both blind? I mean, is there is there something there about their bl- the people's <coughs> blindness being illustrated by... Maybe so. Is a mole blind? Anybody know? Most of them are. Are they? Okay. I didn't know that, so maybe so. I don't know. Yeah, Jeremy. Is this the Old Testament exhortation that's similar to Paul's statement in Philippians 3 where he counted everything was gained as loss it was it was refuse to him he was willing to give it up it's garbage I hadn't thought about that but yeah I think so that's, that's a good passage good point Chris their idols were their gods that was what was supposed to save them but when it when the going got tough out go the idols yes the other thing is the people went into holes in the ground and caves that's where you find moles and bats. <laughs> they, so they, Maybe there's something to that. They've gone down where, into the, into their territory. So if you're discarding them in that area, I guess that's who will. Yeah, that's an interesting thought. I hadn't thought about that. Good point. I kind of read it that uh, they they give them their idols, their moles and bats, so that they can go in. It's like they're fitness. Well, I think it may be traveling light, getting rid of these things that are going to be uh, encumbrance to them and are going to be, they're getting rid of the things that are going to mark them as a target for the Lord's guided missiles. And, and so they're getting rid of those so they can go into the caves and try to hide themselves. I think because they see these idols as being something that will mark them as an enemy of God. That'd be my feeling. I think this passage really gets to the root of the problem with idolatry. Because he's not saying stop regarding idols, verse 22. He says stop regarding men. But the problem is not they're elevating someone else's will above God's will. They're elevating themselves above God's will. That's exactly right. Yes. Isn't this the same response of the evil over in Revelation, where they start trying to hide themselves in the caves and the mountains, saying, fall on us? Yes. And who can stand? Yes. Revelation 6, which is a reference back to Hosea, whatever chapter that is, 10, I think, or somewhere through there. Uh, Yeah. 13, maybe, I don't know. Um, but yeah, that the problem is the exaltation of man, putting man in the center of everything. The root problem in the idols is the men who make the idols. It's the men who get too self-important. And just how, how significant are men? Well, he says, I love this, stop regarding man whose breath of life is in his nostrils. You know what that means? You know just how powerful you are? You are no stronger than the air you suck in through your nose and your mouth. 
all there is to it. You block off those little bitty openings. You block off your throat and your nose. Guess what? You're gone. You're no more than the air you take in your nose. That's how fragile and frail and non-powerful we are. You know, we could use the illustration today, you know, doesn't take any more than a, you know, rapidly moving piece of lead in the wrong spot to snuff out your life just like that. That's all it takes. Just, you know, these little sized piece of lead and, and you're gone. We're nothing. We think, I'm so tough, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. You know, I'm the owner of this, I've got that. You know, I've, I've graduated from this and that and the other thing and I've accomplished. We're nothing. Just the breath in our nose. We've got to realize that and humble ourselves before God. We just are too impressed with ourselves and a lot of other people. Men are nothing. God gave us the breath of life and he can take it back. Sir. Is, is there a contrast with verses 17 and 18? In this version it reads this one sentence, The pride of man will be humbled, and the loftiness of men will be abased, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day, but the idols will completely vanish. And the idea being that man will be humbled, will be brought low, but the idols will be completely destroyed because only God will be left. And showing, even though it's even though man is powerless, showing the worth of man compared to the idols. Maybe so. Maybe just the idea that nobody's going to want him on that day. That's like a hot potato. You don't want any part of it. <coughs> Shame. So we surmise as much as saying, seeing that if man is worth nothing. They're weak. We can't do anything then why do we seem to put ourselves above God and so many times whenever we sin we're being selfish the root of all sin is selfishness the root of all sin is us so if man is so weak and we're worth so little then why do we seem to put ourselves above God every day we need to open our eyes to the truth don't we other thoughts We see here that they're trusting in the wisdom of men or people, whether it's their own wisdom or of other people, uh, whether it's just other men. And sometimes I think there's a there's a false humility about that. That I just you know I don't know these things, but other people know them. And you end up accepting the philosophies of the East and, and, and the Philistines, and you think you're doing something humble because you're you're trusting them. I don't know anything. It's them instead of true humility, which would be trusting the Lord and His wisdom. And there's still a pride in that, and still trusting in people to God. I agree. No man knows anything. You know, and, and when we exalt other men, that's really uh, an idolatry of its own. We can do that in the church. It's true. Take other people's opinion, not study it for ourselves. Other comments? Well, what's God going to do? Chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. 
For behold, the Lord God of hosts is going to remove Jerusalem from Judah, both supply and support, the whole supply of bread and the whole supply of water, the mighty man and the warrior, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of fifty and the honorable men, the counselor of the expert art- artisan, artisan, sorry, and the skillful, skillful enchanter. And I will make mere lads their princes. And capricious children will rule over them. And the people will be will be oppressed, each one by another, and each one by his neighbor. The youth will storm against the elder, and the inferior against the honorable. When a man lays hold of his when a man lays hold of his brother in his father's house, saying, You have a cloak, you will be our ruler, and these ruins will be under your charge. On that day he will protest, saying, I will not be your healer. For in my house there is neither bread nor cloak. You should not appoint me ruler of people. Okay. So don't regard man because God's going to take them away. God's going to destroy men, especially the leaders that people trust in. The heroes, the military leaders, the political leaders, the religious leaders, the skilled craftsmen, all the people that we look up to, God's going to destroy them and leave the people in chaos with the society disintegrating. God, when he wants to judge and punish nations and churches, he leaves them with incompetent leadership. He leaves them with, well, verse 4. Who are ruling over them? Boys and infants. Yes. Children. Well, what's wrong with having children as your leaders? <laughs> yeah. Don't have a whole lot of experience. A whole lot of maturity. How old do you have to be to be president of the U.S.? 35. And there haven't been many 35-year-olds elected, have there? <laughs> you know, you look around at the candidates, most of them are in their, what, 50s, 60s? Is there a reason for that? You know, you could elect a 35-year-old, but you don't see many of those. You know, we understand that having a young ruler is uh, uh, definitely a detriment to a nation, and yet in Judah, after Hezekiah, only one king was even 25 when he became king. They, they generally had, you know, youngsters ruling over them. And you see, in this chaos created by the vacuum of leadership, what do you see in verse 5? Oppression. Oppression. You see teenage rebellion. <laughs> you see... The, the fact that without good leadership people just go to war with one with another. And you see how desperate things have gotten. Because in verses 6 and 7, when a man lays hold of his brother in his father's house saying you have a cloak, you'll be our ruler. These words will be under your charge. You know things are getting pretty desperate when the only qualification for leadership is he's got a good pair of clothes, you know, he's got a decent suit, we'll make him king. Uh, and even more so when he protests and saying, I don't want to be king. You know, usually that's something anybody wants. Uh, but even, you know, this guy doesn't want it. Uh, well, it's kind of funny to think, to say you'll be ruler over the ruler. <laughs> <laughs> yes. 
Yes, they, uh, you know, it's kind of like, uh, you know, I, I heard my dad one time tell a story about uh, a um, running back in a ball game. That's probably just a tale, but, but uh, the team was losing really, really badly. And, uh, you know, the crowd started chanting out that they wanted this running back to get the ball. They wanted him to have the ball. The quarterback finally looked up in the stand and said, he said he don't want the ball. <laughs> you know, you listen bad enough, you don't want it, you know. And that's kind of the way it is. He doesn't want the leadership. Nobody wants it. You know, things are in d- despair. They're, they're, it's disaster. And uh, that's what God's going to do to prove that men are nothing. That without God's support and help, society disintegrates in chaos. Matt? It's the, it's the fulfillment of so much of Deuteronomy. Uh, you're on the whole book, he's saying, if you do my will, it'll be a land of milk and honey. If you don't, uh, the water will be taken up. There'll be no land. The land will be ruined. It's the fulfillment of that. Amen. Yes, it is. And you see that constantly. The prophets, if you know Deuteronomy well, you will trace through the curses of the covenant. And they're just word for word throughout the prophets. God is doing exactly what he said he'd do when they were unfaithful to him. Other thoughts? Eight to fifteen. For Jerusalem has stumbled and Judah has fallen, because their speech and their actions are against the Lord, to rebel against His glorious presence. The expression of their faces bears witness against them, and they display their sin like Sodom. They do not conceive it. Woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves. Say to the righteous, that it will go well with them, for they will eat the fruit of their actions. Woe to the wicked, it will go badly with them, for what he deserves will be done to him. Oh my people, their oppressors are children, and women are Oh, my people, those who guide you lead you astray and confuse the direction of your paths. The Lord arises to contend and stands to judge them. The Lord enters into judgment with the elders and princes of his people. It is you who have devoured the vineyard. The plunder of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people and grinding the face of the poor? Declares the Lord God of hosts. So, they are against God. They are rebelling against God in verse 8. But verse 9 is a little surprising. He says they display their sin like Sodom. They do not even conceal it. Well, would you want them to? I think he's shocked. They don't even try to hide it. Depends on what they're going to do with it. If you, can, if you admit that your sin and repent from it, that's one thing, but if you admit it and flaunt it, that's a problem. I agree. Because a a, a mentality, a, a culture where you don't have any motivation to conceal your sins is worse. I'll give you a quote. I'll read it two or three times. you have to think about this one. But hypocrisy is the homage that vice pays to virtue. Think about that. Hypocrisy. 
is the homage, is the worship that vice pays to virtue. See, when you're a hypocrite, when you conceal your sin, you're acknowledging that virtue is the right thing. And you'd like to pass yourself off for virtuous, even though you're not. When you have no motivation to even look virtuous, I don't know that this is true, but I've heard many people say that there's always been a ton of days. They were just in the closet, so to speak. <laughs> you know, it wasn't culturally acceptable to be gay in the past, so they hid it. Now we have such a wonderful society that they can openly express their sexual preferences. And people say, you know, so it's really no worse than it was. I mean, because they were always around. Well, I think there are probably more than there were. But even if there aren't, it's a blessing to have a culture where you wouldn't want to admit it and own up to it. When it becomes accepted, flaunted, and you're perfectly comfortable with showing everybody how wicked you are, that's worse in some senses, it's better when they want to conceal their sins. And it's worse when nobody even cares. That's how bad they were. That's why God was going to judge them. These are God's people acting like Sodom. Comments and questions on 8 and 9? You've got the options in 10 or 11. The righteous, the wicked. They both reap what they sow. That's what he says in 10 and 11. And then he warns them again of the leadership he was going to give them in verse 12. What kind of leaders? Children and women. Well, what would be wrong with a woman leader? Uh, in their culture, the women weren't allowed to teach the men because of Eve's sin. Okay. There wasn't no plan. Yes, maybe even more than that. Um, while, wow, we've come so far in our culture that we don't think maybe that's all that bad. What would be the obvious problem with, say, women kings and women presidents and prime ministers? Thank you, the weaker vessel. Yeah, I think so. I think you wouldn't, you know, would you want uh, a woman to be the army general to lead the troops into battle? Well, in our society, maybe so. <laughs> but, you know, you would think of more weakness there. Not a, a gender well-suited for leadership. Children aren't bad, but they shouldn't be leaders. Women aren't bad, but leadership is not the role that they're most naturally suited for. So he says this as a punishment. That's the kind of leadership he'll give them. Those who guide you lead you astray and confuse the direction of your paths. And so the Lord's going to judge them and judge the leaders, the elders and the princes in verses 14 and 15 for doing what? By exploiting the people they're supposed to present. Exactly. They use their position to take advantage of the poor. That they crushed to enrich themselves. God constantly judges leaders on the basis of how they treat the nobodies. 
you can tell so much about the character of anyone by how they treat people who are inferior to them. Will they step on them and use them and take advantage of them because they can get by with it? Or do they honor them and respect them and care for them? think that is you know I've come to see more and more that is a big um, sign of a person's character <coughs> it's interesting but taking that thought back to 7 and 8 ultimately their leadership and how they treat the people that they lead is against God like Joseph was saying about his sin against Potiphar can I do this thing and sin against God. And it comes back against God. And I like the way that it, it describes him in verse 8. Define his glorious presence. You know, going back to verse 4 of chapter 1, his holiness. It defies his glorious presence. Amen. So there's still a huge problem. How we treat weak people, even in our eyes, whoever we see is weak, physically or treat those who can't do anything for us. That tells you something. I find verse 15, the first part of it, kind of interesting. What do you mean by crushing my people? Even though God has taken away their leaders and given them poorly in exchange and you know, done this to punish them, they are still his people, they're still God's people, even though it looks like he's abandoned them, but whenever someone messes with them, he's still right there to say, you hurt my people and I need an accounting for you. Well, exactly. Exactly. This is my people you're doing that to. God takes that personally. <clears throat> Think about Matthew 25, the judgment scene. Why do other comments and thoughts through 15? I think along that same sort of a line, you know, time and again we see, you know, things about how we treat the widows and the orphans. And we see that, uh, I've heard it put that God is the God of the underdog. You know, God, God is for the people who can't do anything for themselves and can't do anything for anybody else. And we need to see that if we're going to treat people who are in that sort of shape poorly, by what right are we doing that when we we're in that position ourselves and what has God done for us when we can't do anything for him 
Exactly. That's the point. We ought to treat others like God has treated us. Point from uh, verses 10 through 12. This is slightly different from the direction you were headed. But uh, it reminds me of uh, how God addresses Cain. When Cain is, is tempted to sin, and God says, You need to match your sin. If you do well, the countenance will be lifted up. If you do not do well, sin is crashing at the door. And he's saying here, verse 10, do well, verse 11, for those that don't do well. And verses 12, it seems that the people, the children of women are ruling them because the men aren't acting according to their purpose. Cain was not worshiping God according to the purpose that he had called him. And if, if we ignore our purpose in life, God is not going to bless us. He's going to bring us back. Good point. Okay. 3.16... To four one. The Lord said, Because the daughters of Zion are haughty, and walk with outstretched necks, glancing wantonly with their eyes, mincing along as they go, tinkling with their feet. Therefore the Lord will strike with a scab the head of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will lay bare their secret parts. In that day, the Lord will take away the finery of the anklets, the headbands, and the crescents. How far did you say? To four one. The pendants, the bracelets and the scarves, the headdresses, the armlets, the sashes, the perfume boxes, and the amulets. The signet rings and nose rings, the festal robes, the mantles, the cloaks and the handbags, the mirrors, the linen garments, the turbans, and the veils. Instead of perfume, there will be rottenness. Instead of a belt, a rope. Instead of a well-set of well-set hair baldness, and instead of a rich robe, a skirt of sackcloth, and branding instead of beauty. Your men shall fall by the sword, and your mighty men in battle, and her gates shall lament and mourn, empty, she shall sit on the ground. And seven women shall take hold of one man in that day, saying, We will eat our own bread, and wear our own clothes, and we let us be called by your name. Take away our reproach. A relatively rare prophetic paragraph addressed primarily to who? Women. Can you think of any others? Yes, the famous cows of Bashan passage in which prophet? Amos, yes. Isaiah 32 also has one. But uh, what is he condemning these women for? And as you begin reading, you see what their emphasis was. Which was? Yeah, seeking glory and attention in all these kinds of ways. By their posture and by their movement and especially by all the stuff they did to themselves to try to attract attention, make themselves look good, and make themselves look high and exalted. And... Uh, as the Lord goes through and talks about all the stuff he's going to take away from them, that, that both shows you the punishment, but it also gives you kind of a feel for what kind of women these were. I mean, man, they had a lot. And they're, uh, I don't know, uh, there's probably a word for that. What do you, they're, uh, wardrobe? Wardrobe? I'm thinking of, uh, like, cosmetic case. Do you have something like that? Yeah, accessory case. Yeah. Your vanity. Yeah. yeah. In their vanity. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. 
Uh, wow. I mean, uh, some of this stuff, I'm not even sure we'd want. You know, uh, nose rings, for example. I don't know anymore, maybe so, but... Uh, that's, I don't know, it's more a men thing anymore than a woman thing, I think, the nose ring. But, but, you know, just all this stuff that she's dolling herself up with, and she's proudly going with her head high, and mincing steps, and tinkling the bangles on the feet, and, oh, she's really, you know, dressed up and dolled up, and really trying to, to show off, and make everybody look at her. And how did God, what was God going to do? Strip it all away. Strip it all away and give her what in its place? Yes. Yes, gaps. Yeah. The opposite. I mean, she's she instead of smelling good, she's gonna stink. You know, instead of having a belch of a rope, instead of having, you know, beautiful hair, you know, she's gonna be bald. You know, instead of having nice clothes, she's gonna be wearing sackcloth. And all of that. God is going to bring these proud women down. Again, I think the point above all things is human pride. God will bring down. Whether it's men's pride or women's pride, when we try to lift ourselves up, when we try to show off and attract attention to ourselves, God will humiliate us. To the point where, I love chapter 4 and verse 1. What do you see happening here? Interesting ratio. Yeah. Interesting ratio. Seven women to one man. And what are the seven women doing? Their reproach taken away. They want their reproach taken away. Still holding on to their pride. Trying to. One man. Yes, exactly. You know, these desperate women are now shamelessly competing for marriage proposal from the only surviving man. You know, the seven women are saying, you know, just marry us. We won't be any trouble. You know, we won't cost you anything. We'll eat all bread and all that. Just, just marry us to make us not seem so, you know, I don't know, forlorn, forsaken. Uh, it's the ultimate humiliation. You know, you ever seen somebody like that that, you know, was so desperate to get married They'd do anything. They'd humiliate them in any way. Just just marry me. Well, you see, they have no self-respect here. They have no... God's taken away all pride. And, and you know, a, a woman who would say, listen, I, I won't eat anything that you, you've provided. I, I, won't, I won't do anything. I won't cost you anything. I'll be no trouble at all. Just please marry me. Well, there's no self-respect there at all. And so God has reversed her pride and humiliated her. Sir. And isn't, isn't it also these seven women are all saying, marry all of us. None of us will cause you any problems. Or is it is it a competition, marry one of us? I mean, this was the day of multiple wives. Who knows? Maybe so. I, I saw it more as each one of them is trying to get this man to marry him, but maybe they're all saying that. I don't know. Which, I mean, it's even more... Yeah. We want to share you. <laughs> kind of humiliating, isn't it? Either way, it just shows you how God judges pride. How he hates just this exaltation, this this haughtiness, this this effort to try to, to get the spotlight and get the glory. God detests that. 
think the shame though of not being married was even greater. So they were they they weren't letting go of their pride. You know, it was going to be so shameful to not be married. Yes, they would be humiliated, but in the end, if they were married, they could hold their heads up high about that. It's almost that their pride is humiliating them here. <laughs> yeah, and maybe there's something too to this idea there's seven women for one man. You know, God's already punished so severely that most of the men have died in battle or whatever. <coughs> Other thoughts? chapter divisions, but this is a particularly weird one. I have no idea why verse 1 wasn't included in chapter 3. It clearly belongs. Uh, you know, it probably was, we might not do any better if we were trying to divide it, but this is not one that was uh, very uh, well divided, I think. John? I wouldn't say that this, this picture that, you know, is painted here is too far from today. Um, you know, I think women adorn themselves in different things, you know, but, you know, the picture here is 50% women, 50% vanity. I mean, most of what they're doing is on themselves to make themselves look better, like we've been talking about, but, uh, you know, I just, I think, you know, of course we need to be careful of this today, and I, I see it so much in, in guys and girls, I can't just say guys, I mean, uh, girls, but... Although it's it's their fault. <laughs> <laughs> right, carry on. You just did. <laughs> you see how superficial we are in our attempts to exalt ourselves. You know what difference does it make if we can, you know put the makeup on with a putty knife and take it off with a hammer and chisel as they always say. You know, I mean, you know, it, it's kind of it's kind of weird when we are so insecure that we have to spend hours and hours trying to look presentable. You know, I mean, wow. It just shows you this focus on ourselves, focus on material things. Um, those who have the Lord don't have to, you know, go all out to, to make the exterior look appealing. He doesn't see the exterior anyway. That's exactly right. Yeah. We're looking at things so close they couldn't real things that were 
close to them, they couldn't see the mountain of chapter 2. They were focused on the page. Uh, and like you mentioned, Mount Zion was underneath their feet. Uh, that's where they lived. And they couldn't see what that meant uh, without God's presence because of the things that they wanted in front of their eyes holes. Good point. Other thoughts? I think we'll take another break. I'm trying to give some. You've done extremely well with, uh, you know, not, you know, getting up a lot and, you know, things like that. If you need to get up to stand up to stay awake or whatever, that's great. But, but you know, just uh, so this gives you some opportunities to, you know, use a bathroom, get a drink, whatever you need, uh, and and that's helpful. I, I don't want to overdo this, but I thought it might be interesting. Just again, kind of emphasizing the fact we need to uh, reach out to each other just for a moment. Uh, how many of you, uh, just raise your hand, how many of you live within 50 miles of Indianapolis? Yeah. How many of you would say you live in southern Indiana? And how many of you live or would consider yourself a resident of another state that's not Indiana? Yeah. So, we're here from lots of places. And uh, so we get to know each other. Uh, we'll spend about 15 minutes. But seriously, I don't know if this will work or not, but what if we try to seriously down here talk as quietly as we can and see if we won't have to yell as much?